So anyways, here we are, Front Page Pass, with uh, Bob Yelling and Nora Novak at Newport Beach. So how are you guys? Oh, we're doing great. great. Good. It's, a good, um, it's a good beach day today, which I'm sure you don't want to hear. I don't want to. <laughs> I'm pretty envious about it, to be quite honest. <laughs> I can live vicariously through you guys, though, so. Yeah. Well, anyways, um, yeah, so I've been, I've been out here, and um, I was at my favorite independent bookstore on earth the other day which is small world books on venice beach it's right on the beach there mm -hmm. and what i love about that bookstore is they take great care in selecting every single title that they do correct that they bring in it's mm -hmm. not like barnes and noble where they just mass order whatever the best sellers are they actually really take time on each of the titles that are in there and so i was shopping of course and then there were there were two books i picked up and it really reminded me of our next guest um one is a great book it's it's about uh it's called delayed rays of the star mm -hmm. and it's about a fictionalized get together between marlena dietrich lenny riefenstahl who's the great german filmmaker who tarnished a reputation by by being hitler's top propaganda right. filmmaker in world war ii but mm -hmm. had she not done that she'd be known as one of the greatest uh film directors of all time um and then anna may wong who was the first chinese american actress so they all got together for a picture in Berlin in 1928. And then this author reimagined the whole thing as a novel. And it's really great. So I bought that book at the same. So that's all about glitz and glam and really glamour, high glamour and, and art and Berlin and the whole 20s uh, Weimar period. Then at the same time, I bought this book called 1973 about the music. And I and I thought I thought I was thinking of our next guest when I bought those two books together because it pretty much describes her in, in a lot of ways and the things exactly. that she And without without her ado, um, I I sat with Nora Novak at a at a group signing about I guess it's been almost four years now, and mm -hmm. listening to her talk about her new memoir Los Feliz Confidential, and it's an incredible story of an incredible time period, which is the early mid seventies, late seventies music scene and art scene and social scene and fashion scene and glam scene all put together in LA, where it was very, very much happening then. And I was mesmerized by the book then. And then I came to, you know, know her a little bit better and found out she's also a really good artist. Mm -hmm. and she's Absolutely. a fashion designer. And she's all these things that she wrote about in her book. And this is the book, uh, Los Feliz Confidential. And it's it never gets old. It's a great read. And, it truly uh, is. We have the author here to talk about it today. So welcome to Nora Novak. Hi, Bob. Hi, Alexa. Hello. Here. <laughs> yeah, well, we're, we're really happy to have you here. We definitely yeah, are. Yeah, we really are. Um, and I want to just start off about the scene that you wrote about. What was it like to be kind of in the middle of the party scene, the fashion scene, the music scene, art, everything, and being one of the hostesses of some of these parties during the 1970s in L.A.? Well, it was a very exciting time because it was the early to mid 70s. I'd been going to Hollywood and then I moved to Hollywood, couldn't wait to live in Hollywood. So I was in the thick of all of it, just going to all the clubs, all the concerts. And it was a time where that 70s rock, especially the glam rock, was just that mm -hmm. whole fashion that I was really influenced by because I just loved it. So that, that was part of it too, with the music, the fashion, the, everything. It was a, an extremely fun time. Yeah, and there's a lot about your life and your experiences that we'll get into, but one thing that kind of stands out for me 
is that you were born in Belgium. You spent your early mm -hmm. years there. Um, your parents were very much into the arts. You have an older brother who's a fine artist. Um, how did how did you spend your early years in Belgium and having a household like that influence the way that you approached the scene in LA when you know when you were a part of it? Well, I really was raised in a very disciplined, you know, Catholic old school European um, mm -hmm. style. And uh -huh. so it was it was quite a quite a contrast <laughs> there. It was a cultural shock really right. here in the States and um not speaking English yet and my parents having hmm. heavy accents and just having to learn how to blend in. So I, I never really felt like I quite fit in because you know that there weren't that many um, immigrants that I knew of at that time in, in the 50s. So uh, when I discovered, you know, sex and drugs and rock and roll, that launched the whole thing that changed right. my life. And I just couldn't wait to be in Hollywood and experiment, experience everything, which is what really resonated with me was after the kind of classic rock evolved exactly. into glam rock. And that was... Uh, <laughs> That was your thing. That was my thing, mm -hmm. yes. Awesome. And your, yeah. your book really portrays um, just that era of wild liberation and freedom that so many try to kind of replicate now, um, but can't. So I'm just curious, like, how did you navigate that time period? Um, you know, is it a point that you would like to revisit or something you want to leave in the past? Or would you do it all over again? I would revisit it and do it all over again. <laughs> Take my time. I would love to. Get up. <laughs> you know, also it was young men and it was a great era. Mm -hmm. It was a very freewheeling era. And, um, you know, you could just walk down Sunset Boulevard and get in all kinds of trouble. <laughs> and not yeah. have to worry about it because it was that era. It was, yeah. it was kind of accepted. Somewhat somewhat safer back then yeah exactly yeah, well so if well. you guys find a way to travel back in time be sure to take me with you because uh yeah well, oh i'd love to you would love it i think the best thing you can do is write books and make movies about yeah. back in time there you go there you and go they're coming out so it's uh, the interest has held mm -hmm. up a lot of uh, yeah. documentaries on all the rock bands and movies so yeah and speaking of which um jumping ahead a little bit you have Las Feliz confidential on tail flicks which is a mm. which is a service for writers that try to get their, their books noticed, and you know I know there's a meeting coming up next week um, regarding possibly moving your book to to film. Um, how how would you see this playing out as a movie? I mean, based on the way you wrote it. Well, I don't want to get ahead of myself yet on that, but if that were to happen, I could see it as a, a film or a series. You know, definitely be a a great option for streaming. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. All right. And well, considering um, the rich contents of the book, because, because, yeah. Because, uh, no, I mean, gosh, if there's ever a, if there's ever a, a series, I mean, come on. But you know, Housewives of OC or or going back to the '70s and rocking, give me a break, right? '70s, yeah, exactly. Two <laughs> snore <Jesus Norris> story, <laughs> definitely. Um, in, and in Los Feliz Confidential, there's so many great high points and, and a few low points to this book. But besides all the fun rock and roll escapades and party stories, you also write very poignantly about a young woman trying to navigate her heart and her emotions and her uh, relationships through the same scene. What was that journey like for you? With the various relationships? With, rela with, with your primary relationship that was in Los Feliz. Yeah. And, and what was it like just trying to navigate your heart and your emotions and, be and becoming 
you know, a woman through this whole scene? Well, I was already very well traveled, you know, having had the European background and I, I you know, had actually many lives already uh, traveling uh, before settling down in Hollywood with one particular uh, person mm -hmm. who I had a great relationship with, but mm -hmm. um, it became a big party house. And, you know, I always worked, I had jobs, I had aspirations to model and, and be mm -hmm. active. So I was busy. You know, it wasn't just partying. I was doing showcases. I was involved in acting workshops and, you know, getting my uh, my SAG card, my after card. So I, w I was busy doing that, you know, along with it. Right. I wasn't just, you know, a party girl. Right. So. Absolutely. Had, Balancing yeah. work and play. Right. right. Exactly. That's how I think I kept it. Mm -hmm. kept it you know, kept it at a certain norm. Mm -hmm. What I found interesting about your journey is kind of how you took part in that lifestyle and, you know, the excesses of the day, yet you seem to always, um, you know, have a sense of who you were and what you wanted throughout. So, you know, how did you kind of maintain that maintain that mindset and kind of stay grounded throughout that, that time period? And, and well, because I that. felt like I still had to work and um, mm -hmm. the boyfriend who owned the big house I lived in, he, he never did. <laughs> <laughs> I never saw him going to work. He claimed he well. was. Turns out he wasn't, in fact. So that was a lifestyle I just couldn't adhere to. I, I understand. I had to go to the house and go to work and make money and, you know, pursue my, my acting, modeling. Mm -hmm. and, and so I kept busy. So, yeah, sure, I was having fun and indulging, absolutely. But I was also busy and serious about other things, too. So, when did you get into? So, you. You were in an artistic household, disciplined mm -hmm. but artistic. Right. Um, when did you personally start getting into art and writing? Well, I'd always drawn as a child because I was encouraged to do that. My father always made us draw. We had pencils on our hands when we were two, mm -hmm. you know. So, um, but I, I think I pretty much put that aside until later when I was in college and I, I, I studied act, uh, drawing. But still, it was, you know, dreams of acting were more uh, important at that time. Mm -hmm. With the later when I worked um, uh, for the Orange County Museum of Art for 10 years. And then I was meeting gallery directors and curators and fantastic artists. And then I and my brother, Mark, who had always been an influence from an early age, and I've been introduced to mm -hmm. so, so much art as a young kid because he was older. So uh, then I started doing my own art. I thought, well, now I've got connections. Exactly. Yeah, started doing my own art and sh exhibiting. Mm -hmm. and was, um, so in the early, well, late 90s. And there's some really colorful and fantastic pieces too. So, you know, as someone who is a renowned artist, I mean, um, can you talk a bit about the technique and the mediums that you use to create such eye-catching pictures? Well, when I started, always having been drawn to uh, female imagery, that's right. what I used. And in fact, I just put that art damaged. Well, I designed that for my book cover uh -huh. uh, because the first book I wrote was art damaged and I had mm -hmm. been painting and I wanted to do a little, sort of an expose of the behind the scenes, yeah. of the whole um, <laughs> contemporary art scene which prompted me to write the book and that's the type of art I was doing then they were collage work with female imagery on canvas and then it was later that I moved and in, moved into doing more kind of glamorous fun pop uh, once again with female imagery sometimes iconic not necessarily but working on panel because then I could um, use a resin finish to get more of a gloss yeah. glossy look 
And, and each piece that I did, I kind of personalized them for what I thought uh, worked for that person, that individual. That particular person, right. Which is, that's my newest one right behind me. That's Catherine Denier, one of my icons. Fantastic. I had to do her, yeah, from <laughs> El Jour, which was the probably one of the first movies I saw her in. Which, oh, wow, yeah. So that, that's what that one is based on. Well, could you talk about another one behind me? That's uh, Honey Ryder, also Ursula Andrews from yeah, <laughs> one yeah. of the first James Bond movies. I think Absolutely. I saw, I I saw as a kid with my parents in a drive-in. And, oh, wow. and I thought, wow, look at her. And I was just a child. So I kind of. I love that piece too. I was going to bring it up at some point. Because I'm a know? huge James Bond fan. So I'll just, oh, I love, oh, yeah, I love that piece, especially. So. Yeah, and, and just a perfect segue, I should also mention that Nora's newest book that's up for sale on amazon.com mm -hmm. is some of her artwork. It's called the Femme Fatale Collection. Mm -hmm. and, and then that's the back cover. And the Femme Fatale Collection is some of her very best, um, you know, just filled with some of her very best paintings Absolutely. of iconic mm -hmm. people. Like this is Nico, who, who was part of the Velvet Underground scene back in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And let's see who else, I'll just give another one. Anita Pollenberg, who is with Marianne, with, mm -hmm. all those, uh, that one. I'll yeah. have to do a sequel because I there's so many more. Where there. And so, and oh, self portrait as well. Right? Yay! There you go. Seventies <laughs> slash eighties self portrait. So, I guess my question to you is, what is it about the femme fatale persona um, journey experience that intrigues you so much? I think I've always had a penchant for that Hollywood 30s kind of glamour. Mm -hmm. And um, I love the whole look of it, which is why I developed a, a loungewear line, which kind mm -hmm. of went hand in hand with my femme fatale. And not necessarily the femme fatale that you think of as in the, you know, the, the noir films. Mm -hmm. This is my version of a more contemporary femme fatale which can still be provocative and seductive, but mm -hmm. these are women to me that are really women of substance, of talent, mm -hmm. um, that have their own unique style, which is a femme fatale as well. Exactly. And, mm -hmm. yeah, and, and seductive too. But what it is, it's their own unique um, allure. And that's what I'm mm -hmm. drawn to. And that's what I try to make come across. Mm -hmm. And I noticed, um, and I want to talk about this about writing style, what, what I really like about your writing style is, first of all, you're both an artist and a writer. And what I see a lot of times when artists try to write, when artists write, is visual descriptions, um, landscapes, anything fixed, inanimate, are great at describing. I mean, just, of course, it's visual, right? Um, but then it kind of drops off when you get into emotions and emotional intelligence, not emotional intelligence, but just articulating emotions and dialogue and so forth that you do both really well. Um, could you, yeah. how do you, um, I know this is, I mean, this is all second nature to you now, I realize that, but if you could deconstruct a little bit, um, how do you, how did you work to balance the two, your, your emotional intelligence and depth as a woman with the artist and put the two together into a writing voice? Well, I think with Los Feliz Confidential, uh, when I concentrated on the house, because everything primarily works around this house, and mm -hmm. what I'm on, I had to visualize the whole thing back in my mind because mm -hmm. I haven't been in that house. <laughs> you know, actually, I did make a few visits later, but um, 
I, I think that I think descriptively because I, I really enjoy uh, describing everything in detail with a color palette in mind because I am an artist mm -hmm. and I do think visually. So I would construct the scenes in that way. And because I also found that I enjoyed dialogue um, and I want it to sound like I'm talking to you and so are the people. Mm -hmm. kind of draw the, the reader in that this is really how, this is the authentic way that these people were talking. So I just tried to blend it and it somehow I found that it worked for me. Yeah. yeah. I think that really does help maintain authenticity to the events that unfold in the book and just, you know, the interactions between, you know, these real life events and stuff like that. So, um, yeah. I'm just kind of curious also, you know, having wrote a memoir, I mean, you know, kind of what was the writing process like? I mean, did you go through a timeline and catalog specific events like as they happened or did you just write what came through memory and then go through and, um, you know, set them up? after the fact kind of yeah, I think it might have been easier if I'd set up a timeline which mm -hmm. is what I'm doing for the sequel because okay. I didn't do that I thought it might make it easier because this one I just started writing mm -hmm. this story that story but it started with with the house and then this the small nucleus of characters that were mm -hmm. important and integral to what was going on in the house right so I just started jotting everything down just you know writing by hand and then, you know, putting in the computer and, and having fun with it and seeing it come to life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the most exciting parts of the creative process. Yeah, it is. yeah it exactly. Is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and let's see, what was my next question? Um, what do you feel fed the, the art glam music, beach, fashion, Metamix that was 70s Southern California. What, why do you think it came together the way it did? And, and I mean, what, what did you, from your, from your vantage point, what fueled it? What fueled it? Um, well, let me, in the early 70s, I was living in Paris and um, a girlfriend sent me a picture of the New York dolls. Mm -hmm. And she had written their name with a arrow on each one it says you won't believe the New York dolls and that that really kind of got me going because then I wound up getting to see them in Paris and in Antwerp wow later. yeah so I was a huge New York dolls fan and then really it all sort of came to place because it seemed at that same time you know the MC5 Iggy Pop and then Bowie everything just emerged mm -hmm. it was kind of an explosion which we'd already I had already gone through in the late 60s with the whole British uh, pop explosion. And then it sort of happened again with the whole glam rock. So these were things that I just, you know, I had to see every concert, had to be there, had to hear the, the music really just filtered through every chapter is what I mm -hmm. tried to do. I put a playlist in the back mm -hmm. because there was just so much great music. And it influenced everybody, the way we dressed, the, the way we partied, everything. Well, that was a really nice touch to put a playlist in the back because yeah. all of yeah. us, all we have to do is see the name of a song yeah. or yeah. hear the mm -hmm. first two notes. And yeah. it takes, it it's not just, it's not just having a memory. It's having, it's just coming back to life. It's having the, that experience all over again almost. Yeah, it's yeah. universal. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. yeah. And, um, and that's and that I wanted to ask you about your book as well about Los Feliz and also going into the new book. Um, you know, there's I mean, we've all I know I've read read a million rock and roll memoirs Me and I've been on a couple of them and everything. Yeah. And um, 
there's a huge difference between a male musician telling a, telling a story about the scene, you know, even the scenes they created, um, and and a woman talking about the same scene. For instance, we tend to we tend to experience music itself differently. Like maybe a guy, and I'll speak for myself. I mean, I feel everything. You know, when I'm at a concert, I feel all of it. But I'm also sitting there watching the guitar, watching him. You know, watching the guitarist run the run up and down the fretboard. What and and you know, thinking of all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whereas, whereas it seems to be more of a feeling experience and a visual experience um, um, for a lot of other people. But what, what do you feel, what do you feel that the, that all the different vantage points you were able to write from with Los Feliz Confidential, how do you feel that adds to the reader's um, experience of that place and time? Well, if they're in my age group, hopefully they will remember those and say, oh yeah, I was there. <laughs> I remember that one. Or, or remember most of it anyways. Or try to. Or, yeah. <laughs> and then for uh, other generations, they, they may think, wow, you know, that, that really would have been fun. Wish it was like that now. Or they have their own music. They have their own scene. But still, maybe their parents or other people uh, were there and we'll, we'll talk about it. And, and fortunately, we still have the movies we have, uh, well, you know, Woodstock, of course, which I, I wasn't there. Altamont, I did, did hitchhike to Altamont. <laughs> so, but then you've got things like um, Bohemian Rhapsody and Rocket mm -hmm. Man and all the documentaries. And so it's, it's great that the- Yeah, the, there was the recent oh, one also about Motley Crue that had come out. Yeah, so, oh, there's there, quite a few yeah, others, I yeah. There, I, I really had fun with that movie. I did too. I mean, people yeah. have some complaints I about it, but it was, a, it was a fun movie. I thought it was fun. <laughs> So that stuff but is yeah. keeping it alive. Bohemian Rhapsody was a good one yeah. as well. So I feel yeah. like they really do strive to keep it alive and kind of bring some of that back. And like I said earlier, you know, um, a lot of people, you know, particularly in my generation, want to kind of recapture that and kind of yeah. find a way to yeah, how build is it that now. When you see these movies now. Oh, it's, it's, it just makes me ecstatic, honestly. And I feel like, um, you know, the music scene nowadays is kind of trying to, to go back to its roots and trying to go back to that, you know, from a musical standpoint and, and cultural standpoint as well. Cause it, I feel like just back then, um, music was so ingrained in every single facet of culture and not necessarily as now it kind of is, I mean, to some extent one could argue, but you know, I really would just like to recapture that nowadays. And I feel like most people- Well, well you know, like too, back then, the music business is totally different than it used to be. I right. mean, back then, sure. back then, the only, the only ways a musician could reach the audience was mm -hmm. live concert put out an album mm -hmm. uh, radio and then in the starting in the mid 70s tv shows like midnight special don kirshner's rock concert yeah. um yeah, a couple of others uh king biscuit flower hour things like that. that was radio mm -hmm. um but the other thing too rodney bingheimer, rodney bingheimer. <laughs> yeah, rodney. <laughs> he helped promote a lot of unknown bands. He sure did. The Runaways, for one. Yeah. I saw them at the Starwood. It was great. Yeah, the Runaways are great. <laughs> awesome. Um, and so the but the the other main difference is now you you build up everything to drop one or two songs and stream them for as many streaming streaming yeah. for as many mm -hmm. views and you know and streams you know streaming downloads as possible then. The, the artists were signed to three, four album deals. And exactly. basically told, you guys better be there by the third album or else. Mm -hmm. Tons of pressure. And right. they put out right. these albums 
fast. I mean, mm -hmm. it was not unusual for a, a band to put out mm -hmm. three albums in an 18 month period mm -hmm. at all. Yeah, the um, landscape has changed drastically yeah. as far as that is concerned. So because so. of that, it made the musicians had to be interactive with their audiences. They just didn't have a choice. Mm -hmm. if, they're, if they're not out there performing live, then... Mm -hmm. And nowadays, unfortunately, I feel like musicians aren't as compensated, um, you know, with streaming, obviously, they're not as financially compensated. But, you know, just given the avenues that you're talking about, Bob, I feel like that they can, um, I don't know, have more of an opportunity to be even more creative and not have to meet, you know, these specific deadlines and stuff like that. So it's really just well, changed. It, it also creates ways. stories and just a whole lifestyle. And exactly. That's what I'm getting at. And that's kind of what, I, from my point of view, that's what helped make the, that time period so big. Is, Absolutely. You know, these guys are all part, you know, they were. They were, and they were also um, at least talking at the time, you know, um, in the talking about mid and late seventies, mm -hmm. they were for younger audiences, they were also a bit mystical because yes. we didn't really know them. We saw these demigods on the stage, <laughs> you know, we, yeah. we only knew them through magazine articles, through radio, TV, and then we would go and see them live. It's not like now where you can watch, you know, any show you want from the seventies on YouTube any day you want. And yeah, exactly. a lot of those bands are still touring. Yeah, they are. Still touring. Very that true. Like a Stones, no filter tour. It's oh, coming back, year. yeah. Crazy. Some of the most am ambitious <laughs> musicians <laughs> ever. Still and he's still going to move well on the stage because <laughs> he won't go out if he, he won't go out if he doesn't move well. <laughs> I'm not I'll knocking any current bands, but there have been a few. They're like, well, after three years, we have to retire. I'm like, three years, the Rolling Stones <laughs> are still playing. You have no excuse. <laughs> well, the Stones, the Stones are uh, 60 years next year. Exactly. So, exactly. So it's fantastic. Yeah. That's why I say, you know, it's you're able i may you know going to one of those concerts i would be able to kind of capture a bit of what you all you know got to see back then so um yeah. so you know back to some of the writing uh because i feel like a part of the writing process um a major part of it is you know listening to music or some form of music it really helps you know put the author and it does for me and bob i'm sure you can speak on this you know put the author in the mindset of the atmosphere of the book you're trying to you know that you're creating i guess so um considering what the book is I'm assuming that music played a large role in it, obviously. So tell me about like any rituals that you did to try to get into the zone and, um, you know, just to relive those moments in your life. Like what music did you listen to or is there any kind of uh, rituals that you kind of did as a writer to get into that that mindset? I can't say that I had any book. particular rituals. Um, I did listen to a lot of the music that I thought right. about I'd be using throughout the book because mm -hmm. I remembered what I was listening to at that time. Oh, wow. So I did go back and, and re-listen to uh, a certain certain mm -hmm. songs because I thought, oh yeah, that's right. That's when we had that party. You know, so that, that mm -hmm. did, <laughs> that's when that happened. So yeah, I, I didn't listen to it as actually at the computer, but I listened to it to sort of you know, give, give my head that vibe that I yeah. knew I could use and describe mm -hmm. what I was wearing or what was going on or what was doing because mm -hmm. that, that music, of course, triggered it. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that just goes to show how powerful music is too. Yeah. That, you know, just even hearing it can trigger just some, some memories that otherwise would have been lost in the catacombs of one's mind, you know what I mean? So it's just, it's really, yeah. really neat, so. Yeah, um, and then um, I wanted to kind of go back to the beginning again, um, your family. This is a really interesting family. <laughs> Um, first of all, your dad was a photographer, right? Mm -hmm. And then, um, um, and then, then your brother, Mark, he's a very good fine artist, um, and, and writer and writer. He's also, he's also written several books and, um, and then, and then I, you know, a few years ago, I had the honor the pleasure of meeting your mom who, who wrote a memoir when she was 104 
That's fantastic. <laughs> I know. Yeah, so and there what it a is. Woman. <laughs> oh my gosh, wow. Yeah, so she wrote that at age 104. That's Nora impressive. Helfinger. And then um um and then there's and then you. So I mean, what a family. I mean, just to, you know, and you talk about the Catholic discipline side. I get that because it's the same here. I was okay. I'm a reformed Catholic as well. From a long um, line of uh, talent. I said from a long line of talent, definitely. That's yes, amazing. yeah. And I was just mm -hmm. You know, and um, you mentioned, you talked a little bit about it earlier, but could you talk a little bit more in depth about um, all that, how that, how that really, having a family like that really kind of, um, uh, you know, just got your own, got, just got your career set up in a way where, you, you know, you just had all these influence before you even started. Well, I think the biggest influence was probably my mom was mm -hmm. always sitting at her little royal typewriter uh, typing right. correspondence typing stories about mm -hmm. uh, to her everybody in Europe uh, because she missed you know Belgium so much so she was always typing letters and then she was typing her stories her mainly her World War II stories mm -hmm. you know they lived through that and then there was there was a lot to be told absolutely and, yes so I didn't really start writing till much later and then Mark wrote his first book, which was Flemish Fries, uh, a fictionalized novel somewhat about mm -hmm. us in Belgium, but not really. But when that book came out, I thought, oh my God, I, I have to have a book out too. Competing <laughs> with yeah. your older brother. He was way ahead of me. So <laughs> that's when I wrote Art Damaged. Um, and I had a great time with that. So that, that was my first book. And then he's written numerous books in between and, and you know, been an art instructor and had many exhibits, but so did I, um, because I also wound up, um, oddly enough, starring in a Belgian reality show <laughs> called The Flumps of Hollywood Vrouwen. Wow. And so I got a lot of fans in Belgium mm -hmm. who saw me on the show because it was only shown in the Flemish part of Belgium. Okay. And so they invited me to come to, uh, to Belgium to exhibit because there was a segment on the show where I had a, um, an exhibit in Laguna and they seemed to like that. So I got to go there and exhibit the work, which wound up also being shown in Holland. So mm. I just, you know, it that was just so exciting, spiraling, you know, mm -hmm. and then they said, Oh, can't you get the book made in Dutch, which I couldn't at the time. Although hopefully someday I will be able to get my mother's book in Dutch. So mm. I would love to see it in Belgian bookstores. Um, so it just sort of one thing kind of led to another, you know, my brother kept writing, I kept writing, we just having more exhibits and just pushing the boundaries on both the art and the uh, writing. It sounds like my yeah. little sister and I, you know, I was, I was a good athlete. She was, she became there a great athlete. Yeah. I was a fashioner, so was she. Always, always competing, you know, I mean, she and I are. Gurus. We she weren't really competing, but we influenced one another, perhaps. Yeah, well, yeah. she, you know, she and I are not. Push each other in that direction. Yeah. Mark and I are seven years yeah. apart. So, yeah. yeah, so there's there's similarities. Believe me, I know mm -hmm. what the I know okay. what the little sister pushing thing is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm an only, that, so I don't have I don't have a sibling. You're an only child. I just get to be the star child, I guess. Well, by default. You're the star so. child. <laughs> okay. 
Okay. Star child. I'm playing. I'm playing. Star too. So she needs to star wherever she goes. Star no, musician. no, no, no. Yes. Yes. Um, musician. Wow. Uh, yeah. Star artist. A little bit. A little bit star of one. writer. Kind of all. Of it. You can play guitar, boy. <laughs> Thank you. I enjoy it. I enjoy it. I've been playing. Uh, say nine years, roughly. Yeah. So wow. it's fun. It's fun. Not everybody likes my music, though. It's a bit too heavy, but some say it is but like i just so i've had some people be like i just turn the music down and watch you play i'm like well at least you're watching because oh. <laughs> it's a it's it's pretty heavy so um well, that reminds me of a time about 10 years ago i took a friend of mine to see a concert in uh, in san diego mm -hmm. and he, um you know and we, we'd been to a million shows when we were kids like when i used to get concert passes when i was doing reviews for the newspaper i always yeah took them a lot right Exactly. So we get down there and the very first thing he does when he, we get down there on the floor is he puts his earplugs in. Oh. And I'm just going, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm such a purist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there's a reason why I can still hear and that's because I didn't go to concerts for about 10 years. Mm -hmm. Because I, I knew part of my yeah. hearing went and I had to stop going just to get my hearing back. Oh Because I just don't, yeah. I don't want to wear earplugs. No, so oh, no. no. What happened to a lot of those musicians that yeah. were ear, right? Tim Tennis, yeah. And Pete Townsend. Yeah, especially oh, the ones. Yeah. Yeah. He can't even play like their guitar oh, anymore, really. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah, musicians that would be playing live and, you know, playing that close to everything. Doing show after show after show. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, what it was, it, it was ten tennis, like you know, where I can be sitting here talking to you, but if there's people behind talking, then right. I can't hear you. Mm -hmm. I hear yeah, them, mm -hmm. and and, it, and there's a ringing in the ear and all of that. Yeah, it's very, it's it's a very real thing. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of us who were went to concerts all the time, like hundreds at least, mm -hmm. um, that happens. So. Yeah. What What were some of the most memorable ones that you've you've been to, Nora? And um, you know, some of these, some, like you know, you guys hosted some of the most extravagant parties. Oh yes. Those decades. So parties. You could name drop wait, a few. Wait, hold on. No. The concerts or the parties? Both. What are we? Uh, both. Sure. Most yeah. Memorable, yeah. Oh, concert parties. Well, definitely um, <laughs> seeing uh, Ike and Tina Turner. Oh wow! Turner. Yes. Uh, she was really spectacular mm -hmm. and they opened for the Rolling Stones Wow! and everybody just rushed to the stage so we were just right there um it, it, it was it was really exciting and of course Spiders from Mars mm -hmm. you know and ACDC and I saw T-Rex I saw a lot of bands just like at the Whiskey or the Roxy before they were that famous uh Patty oh, wow. Smith and, and um T-Rex and oh the to see the tubes a lot and yeah. so many bands i'm th i'm just not that's really neat though you you get to see a lot of them in that transition yeah, period. Was phenomenal seeing her because you could see yes. them close there was no guards there were no security mm -hmm. there weren't any lines you just mm -hmm. could walk right up and generally you could get in cheap or get in free or climb over a fence or something so <laughs> <laughs> you know? there's a way i saw, yeah. saw the velvet underground i mean it, you know which was amazing that's excellent so, not that I remember much of that show, unfortunately. But anyhow, um, <laughs> well, you know, Michael, <laughs> Michael, Shreve, all of us co concert goers, so no judgment here between the three of us. I mean, <laughs> yeah, well, well, Michael Shreve, the drummer for Santana, told me a mm -hmm. funny story. Like, so it was Woodstock was in 1969, so in 2009, mm -hmm. 40 year anniversary, they put the Woodstock movie on TV. Well, the first day of well, the first day of Woodstock was August 15th. And that was my that's my birthday. Mm -hmm. So every year for Woodstock, I get 
it's a nice double celebration. Oh, listen August to this. 15th, you're a Leo. I'm a Leo. Okay. And so <laughs> I, yeah, so I, um, yeah, so every, every August, you know, on my birthday, whenever possible, I listen to, mm -hmm. to the Woodstock okay. concert. So anyways, this particular year, I was texting with Michael. It just so happened, you know, we knew each other. We were doing some writing stuff together. And he told me, you know, and, and Michael on the Woodstock on the, on the song Soul Sacrifice has probably the most famous drum solo ever put to film. Mm -hmm. It was in the Woodstock movie. He just goes off his rocker for about seven minutes. And it's just <laughs> the most amazing drum solo. And because the Woodstock movie had millions of viewers, it it's known as the most, you know, to our generations known as the most famous drum solo. Well, I asked Mike, since he's a jazz drummer, he's not, he's not bossa nova, he's not super fast, he's mm -hmm. not, you know, he's not punk, obviously. Um, I asked him, how did, how did, how did this happen? And he goes, well, it was the day after my 20th birthday, he's the youngest guy there. Mm -hmm. And he said, and, and he goes, and before, about 15 minutes before we appeared, let's just say Carlos and I did something that changed my mind. Uh -oh. <laughs> and oh. we, go, we, we climbed over the fence, we started playing. And when Soul Sacrifice came on, he said, Carlos and I came on to what we did at the same time. And so it was like this perfect moment where, let's just say there was a substance involved. And, and they, and that's, that's what led to that, part of what led to that perfect moment of music. Okay. And um, and that's you know, and I'm, I'm just thinking that's just the perfect of synchronization going on. But that's it's awesome. like, yeah, it was anything goes. Yes. Well, I remember the Joe Cocker uh, performance stands out to me in that movie, and mm -hmm. uh, ten years after. Yes. Ten years after, who had I'd seen when I was in high school? <laughs> yeah, that, that was. Well, you know, Alvin Lee and George Harrison were best friends. Okay. And so okay. Alvin taught George how to play faster post Beatles. Oh. And George okay. taught Alvin how to play slide. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. So if you look at 10 years after yeah. in the, towards the mid 70s, he starts bringing more slide in. Okay, interesting. Yeah. And then you look that. at George, his first couple albums, yeah. <laughs> well, the albums after All Things Must Pass, he's mm -hmm. plays faster. But those two cross, they, yeah, they, okay. they kind of cross pollinated there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That is really neat. So, as far as um, some of the part, the extravagant parties that you threw and stuff, what are oh, some? Yes. I mean, if you could party. name drop it, <laughs> parties. it's really neat. Well, it's, um, it's very fascinating. You know, it, it was a party era. You know, exactly. Yeah. So, and uh, the boyfriend really enjoyed hosting the parties, and I had a lot of cute girlfriends too. So that mm -hmm. So, um, you know, he and because his dad was a uh, head and neck surgeon, we had access to a lot of. Um, chemicals, you know, that were freely handed out, especially to the girls that came in. So everyone was in a great mood all the time, naturally. And then, um, you know, it just sort of got to be known. So friends would be at the, say, the Chateau Marmont, where there were a lot of parties, we'd go there, and they'd bring people over. It was celebrities and uh, Warhol people, hangers-on, uh, people on the fringe, mm -hmm. unknown and known musicians, all kinds wound up at the house and so it was just you know you probably have quite a few famous inter interactions with famous yeah donna summer is hanging out um, he just had a, a lot of people just uh, coming in and out and they just knew that was a place to come and party yeah <laughs> drink and, you know yeah and there's there's nothing more <laughs> fun party favors yeah. right <laughs> accessible so you know and there's nothing more fun than writing 
or a few things more fun than writing party scenes in books. Right. Really. It was, it, it seemed glamorous, yeah. indulgent, a little decadent, but it still was a free and easy time. And it was, it well, was that's, fun. and that's something about mm -hmm. the whole book really, that really stands out to me is yes, there was some, probably, there was some decadence, of course, that's the seventies were, but mm -hmm. there, but what really struck me about the tone of your book is it's high, high intelligence, uh, yes. high fashion sense, high artistic sense. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I was getting to earlier, trying to ask that oh. question about the difference in how you approach uh, writing about rock and roll. And, but, but this just, this book just really just feels kind of like a high, high, almost a high art end of the whole experience. Well, I like hearing it put yeah. that way. Okay, yeah. thank you. It's true, yeah, yeah. that's an accurate way to put it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, well, yeah, it's not, it's not the biography of the Sex Pistols, that's for sure. No, it isn't. <laughs> yeah. Didn't get to see them. Yeah. Very yeah. intriguing read. So brief. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. They well, were I'm going to ask a little bit about, um, kind of ask somewhat about the writing process, because I know, obviously, you've done fiction um and not and uh you know the the memoir so i was gonna ask if you could compare uh what it was like writing on the memoir which is you know solely based on reality and by memory and then um you know delving into and exploring your imagination and writing a fictional piece which is would be art damage so um kind of what was your favorite and what was the different ways you approached writing those really well um once i started art damage i just i couldn't i just kept going i kept thinking of uh well initially to base it on what really happened because things happened there <laughs> and i had some really great characters that i worked with which i had been sort of taking mental notes on when i worked and then after i left when i was writing the book uh, but then i realized i i needed to fictionalize it because i needed to change some names to start with um and then i just uh I made certain things happen that I, I would have liked to have happened that mm -hmm. of course didn't in reality. So um, I just had a lot of fun doing it that way. But I knew that eventually I would write the actual um, memoir. Mm -hmm. So because I wanted to include the childhood coming to this country, growing up and, mm -hmm. and all the, yeah. So they were different uh, because it was also about 10 years spaced apart from the first book. So, and now when I'm writing, I think it's, it's more like I did the second book. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, and I'm looking at my scrapbooks, mm -hmm. I'm looking at pictures, I'm talking to friends and trying to trigger all the memories and, and doing a timeline and getting it, getting it down. So what's the art? Like investigative journalism on yourself or something, isn't it? Yes, yeah. And that's what I, memoirs I, are I, sometimes. I need an investigator. <laughs> It's like, wait, was that 82 or 83? I don't know. <laughs> right. um, and so what is, what's your general premise and art going to be for this next memoir? Is it, are you, are we taking us well, through the 80s? I am struggling a little bit with it because now I no longer have that, that little nucleus of very important characters. Mm -hmm. Nor do I have any of the childhood to back, uh, to back, you know, to, to back up on. So I'm not sure. I'm just right at this point getting down as many stories as possible uh, throughout the 80s, which is now a whole different scene, different mm -hmm. fashion, different music. So it's kind of like starting over. Um, hmm. But I'm doing a little bit more of a, a timeline basis now. Okay. So I, I have to, I really got to write a lot more each day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when, I, when I see how much my brother writes, it's, 
he just finished another book. He's well, a, you're, a book you did. Right. And now that you edit it, and now he's got another book out. I'm like, no, stop. I can't catch up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so, I've got to push myself to write more. I do. But yeah. Um, um, yeah so and, is that so the main? I'm sorry, go ahead, Alexa. Oh, are you sure? Okay. Uh, <laughs> we do this all the time. Sorry, Nora. Uh, <laughs> Okay, um, so what I was going to ask is, you know, is that everything that you have uh, planned for the future? Are there any other works that you have going on? Um, or is that just that's the main focus at the moment is doing the, the second memoir? The is second that... memoir, correct. And um, mm -hmm. I hopefully will do a Femme Fatale collection volume two. Cool, okay. Because uh, I've got a few new pieces already for that. So I will continue with that also. I look forward to seeing that. Busy. And then your artwork, do you have any, um, are you hanging art anywhere? Do you have any shows coming up, any exhibits? I did have a big show through Ethos Contemporary Gallery. It's a boutique gallery in, New York, in, in Newport Beach. And they also had a big gallery on Highland in Hollywood. That one had to close down because the building got sold. But um, in fact, this, these pieces are with that gallery and they're online. They're online uh, through Ethos and through Saatchi. So, and I have my studio, um, so I'll, I'll whip up some more work and just keep writing, trying to juggle both. And besides, besides Amazon and the usual online um, bookstores, where can we find your books? Well, Traveling Shoes Press um, published the book. Uh, they did the design of it through and published it through Lulu's. Uh, so you can go to any one of those or you can go to my website, noranovac.com. And it'll link you to everything. Okay. It'll show the art. It'll show the books, and it'll show my uh, book trailer, and um, also it will link to my um, my Lux Nora Lux loungewear, which is my right. 30s kind of glam loungewear, which I need to keep up on that as well. And so. I and I just want to say for our listeners and and viewers, um, um, this is a good time to to. Um, get Nora's books or at least take a look at them um, and as much as a sales pitch as it sounds like it kind of is but also the the other thing is um, reviews are really good for authors to put up on Amazon especially now um, in in Nora's case you're in a kind of a crucial time because you're just, this is starting to get looked at as a possibility for film those reviews really help when when pitch agents and producers and and people in studios look at film projects so it all helps. It's all part of the journey for an author. And, um, but yeah. And I would consider, uh, because I've written some articles for the pop culture site called pleasekillme.com and they had taken a liking to my book. I would, and, and they came out with the new, the new edition 20 years, um, since the book first came out. So I would also consider, uh, revising and adding stories that I forgot yeah if if need be to have a second edition so we'll see what happens what it depends on what develops yeah, well be. the beauty of second editions is yeah. that you you get like five to ten percent or so of the word count to change right which I can easily so you do can that. put mm -hmm. add chapters subtract chapters yeah. change chapters yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah well I mean as a very successful what I would consider to be a very inspirational woman I have to ask is there and I know others watching are thinking the same. So is there any advice for others aspiring to go down a similar path as a writer, artist, or just personality? Well, um, you know, I really, I, I do want to suggest uh, taking memoir workshops. I think that they can be helpful. 
Um, I certainly would recommend that if, if you really just don't know where to start. But contact me. I'll be happy to, <laughs> to give you one myself at this point. And I really just, you know, for those who kept a journal, I'm sure they're glad now. So really write everything down. I, I sure wish I had kept, kept a journal. I'd have so much more to tell. Yes, you would. Wow, I wouldn't have to. <laughs> I can do yeah. that. <laughs> so that, that's helpful. I won't, I won't show you my box then. I've been, yeah. I've been keeping them since the mid 70s. I, I never really Yeah, so I, in down. fact, I was looking at some the other day and it's like, I don't remember this. Yeah. You, you know, and there it is. Write it all so, down. Yeah. I'd be glad you did. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So, um, anyways, um, I think we've covered everything. I would say it's been a really wonderful conversation and we finally got it together to back? have. We'll have to, de we'll definitely have to have you back. I've had such a great time. It's good to have you. Oh yeah, we'll definitely have her back yes. when the next book comes out. Thank you, sure. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you so much, Nora, for being our guest today. Yes, we really appreciate it. it. What a fun conversation. I mean, whenever we get to, whenever Alex and I get to talk about art and music and cultural history, it kind of lights us up. It really does. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it does. Yeah. So, but so yeah, anyway, thank you for thanks again for being on front page pass. Thank you for yeah, having absolutely. Okay. Front page pass. Yay. <laughs> And, and just to remind everybody, we're, we're available on all platforms, YouTube, Anchor, uh, Google, iTunes, Amazon, Spotify, et cetera, et cetera. All of them. Thank <laughs> you. Go to nornovac.com. Yep. Okay. Well, thank you. All right.